Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk microgrids and microhousing. Not necessarily together, but two different segments, so stay tuned. Plus, news regarding Dragon Con, the annual science fiction, fantasy, and gaming convention that takes place right here in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend. All that's coming up next, but first this. Yes, the roadways were busier than usual on this first day of school for several area districts. Clayton, Cobb, DeKalb, and Fayette counties all said welcome back today. However, in Clayton, students and staff from Point South Middle School and North Clayton High School in Jonesboro will begin the school year virtually, at least until Wednesday. That's because, according to the district, some staff members are having to quarantine. Now, the Atlanta Public Schools begin their fall school year later in the week. And all of this, of course, is related to the pandemic still. In related news, the national eviction moratorium set in place by the Atlanta Bay CDC. Yes, it's over. But in DeKalb County, Superior Court Chief Superior Court Chief Judge Asha Jackson signed an emergency judicial order last Friday, creating a countywide eviction moratorium for 60 days. Of course, this was following the CDC's moratorium. And also, CEO Michael Thurman says the county is revising its rental reimbursement program. Now, what that means is once approved by the DeKalb Board of Commissioners, landlords would be eligible to receive 100 percent of all past due rent. That's up to 12 months back and also three months rent going to get the home to get the renter ahead. Now, meanwhile, the nation's coronavirus surge is also prompting some health and safety protocols, as mentioned, for one of the nation's largest science fiction and fantasy and gaming conventions. We all know it's Dragon Con. It takes place right here in Atlanta over the Labor Day weekend. Joining me now to talk more about this is Dan Carroll. He's Director of Media Engagement, a familiar voice always joining Closer Look. Dan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. What a pleasure to hear you again. And, uh, you know, just like what happened with Dragon Con last year, sometimes glitches occur, but we got to keep plugging along. there and you go. We got our connection. All right, so Dan, let's let's back up a little bit because we all know that there were going to be some some health and, and safety protocols in place, but you all made some adjustments. So let's take our listeners through this now. First of all, let's start with the big news, which is the parade. The parade, indeed. Uh, the parade will not be open to spectators who are not Dragon Con attendees. Uh, this is. This is obviously news that we we don't want to be sharing, but it was uh, without a doubt the best decision 
for holding the parade this year. So, Dan, I can understand someone saying, well, so you're going to have the parade, but only if you are a participant and you have, or you obviously you're a worker with Dragon Con, you'll be allowed to even get to the, the parade route. Is that what you all are saying? Yes, uh, Dragon Con participants will be allowed along the parade route, uh, but we're asking everyone to stay home and enjoy the parade, both on YouTube with Dragon Con TV, uh, but also here in Atlanta on CW69. We have got uh, arrangements made to make sure as many people can enjoy the parade as possible. But we do understand that, that the parade is, is something that we're going to need to limit the crowds at. And this was the best solution that we could find. Dan, you are you are speaking on behalf of the convention. What is your response to someone who says, hey, it's outside. It's not indoor. There is not a, in, a mask mandate indoor. Um, perhaps it, someone says that perhaps it's not a, a fair. We want our, our parade. Well, um, uh, speaking uh, as, a, as for the convention, we would love to be able to have the parade with everybody in Atlanta participating and watching and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. But uh, we are following the same protocols that were held for the Peachtree Road Race. Mm-hmm. Um, the Peachtree Road Race was held again this year. Um, very successful race, but not a race with the participants because participants were asked to stay home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if you went down to Piedmont Park because you participated in the Peachtree Road Race, you would find that the park was free of participants. That was outdoors. Um, parades have historically, uh, going back to the Spanish uh, Spanish flu epidemic, parades have been uh, notorious for being super spreader, spreader mm-hmm. events, and we want to limit that as much as possible. And you know, Dan, one of the, the big draw, of course, for the Dragon Con is for folks who may not even uh, have a, a badge, but may not be able to attend. They get to come down to the hotels and hang out and see all the, the different folks. That's going to be a little bit different, too, because the hanging out is going to be a little bit different, right? Well, the hanging out is, but, but I want to point out, Rose, uh, since 2013, we have limited attendance inside the hotels. Not because we're mean, but because we ran out of space. <laughs> um, DragonCon cons- consistently uh, has been growing o- over the past past uh, 20 years, and we have just not been able to accommodate everybody inside the hotel. So we've been doing batch checks in the evening going back to 2013, and as, as uh, early as 2017, I myself was stopped. Get, going into a hotel without a badge mm-hmm. in the middle of the afternoon on Sunday, I'd, I'd left it in my, my hotel room. Um, so this is, in terms of people coming into the hotel, that's not new. In terms of this being on the street, yeah, that that's it's going to be one of the things that we're going to have to deal with. But um, I'm sure that if we all do our part, we, we all participate in vaccinations, we all uh, do what we can. Uh, as Atlantans and as Georgians, we will soon be uh, not having to worry about this again mm-hmm. next year. And Dan, uh, you all are asking that all fans wear a mask while indoors in, in a convention venue. If someone is already in their 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 cosplay costume or they're wearing, you know, their favorite, you know, Star Wars or whatever, do they still need to have a mask per se? Well, what. Well, uh, I myself 
am cosplaying this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't normally do it, but I am. I plan on wearing my mask while I'm cosplaying. Uh, we're looking for people wearing cloth masks, um, those masks that have been approved and recommended by the CDC and other health authorities. And uh, this is not, we're we're not going to give exceptions just because somebody looks really awesome without one. <laughs> so even if you're a stormtrooper, you need to have a mask. Well, uh, some co- costumes, I myself have a Star Wars costume that comes with a cloth mask already. <laughs> I'm safe, but we ask everybody to to uh, follow the, the follow the, what we're put out, wear the mask. And Dan, I know you. there are some large ballrooms within the hotels that you have forums, you have panel discussions, you even have some panel discussions in some of the smaller breakout rooms where you all, and I've been in some of those breakout rooms listening to some of the my favorite sci-fi authors. Are you all going to limit, and sometimes it's standing room only, are you all going to limit that? We are. We are. Well, first off, this is the first year we have had an attendance gap. Um, we, you know, we've, we've sold out of of some day batches, but this time is the first time we, we have gone in with the idea of an attendance cap. And that is, it seems to be working. We anticipate actually um, having no batches for sale before we get to the convention. Mm. But uh, uh, we do want to make sure everybody's safe in the rooms. And, and there's two ways we're doing it. First off, we're closing down the rooms for a cleaning period every every day. Mm-hmm. And that cleaning period will rotate throughout the convention so that we're not just shutting everybody down at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. No, we're going to rotate it out so that each room will have a different schedule. And um, the other thing we're doing is we're, we're cutting capacity in seating by two-thirds, and, and there will not be any standing room. Uh, there's always a very big dance that takes place. Will you still have the dance? We will have... Uh, for us, we actually have uh, normally about 16 dances. A lot of people don't realize mm-hmm. how much of part of drag con that and is. folks like to dance, dress like they a do. hobbit. Yeah, it's not a bad but we thing. Are, we are limiting capacity in the dance hall, uh, and we're canceling our, um, our dance design specifically for the kids uh, mm. because the children under certain ages are not able to get vaccines. And um, we think it's just the smartest thing. We're also uh, canceling some of the other child-only child focused events. Mm, I, that, I imagine that was tough, Dan. It was, it was very tough. I, I mean, the, the dances are so popular. That's, uh, you know, Rose, you've seen me. I, I, I try to do as much work as I can while I'm there. The dances are the chance I get to see my friends. Yeah. So um, those being restricted... Um, you know, I want to make room for the people who are coming to Dragon Con to enjoy themselves. So I'll be foregoing some of the dances I would normally go to. And the kids really love to be down there watching all of the events, even if they don't have a, a badge. It's just the, the excitement to see little kids running up, getting a picture with three or four different Iron Men and, and Batman and Wonder Woman and all that. But it, uh, we it's going to be different this year. Uh, Dan, before I let you go, what do you want folks to know, though, about just for the casual uh, fan that wants to come down and enjoy Dragon Con? C- can they still do that? Please do not. Uh, we would we love you. We 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 created the parade as a as a gift to the city of Atlanta. But working with the city, working with our partners, this is going to be the best 
best route for everybody. Um, and if you are coming to Dragon Con, please, uh, please uh, consider vaccination um, and make sure that you, you're you following the procedures. And uh, most importantly, remember that we're doing everything we can to make it safe and fun. And for more information, www.dragoncon.org update. All right, Dan Carroll, Director of Media Engagement for Dragon Con. It's going to be a little bit different this year, folks. But uh, It is. Right. Thank you, Dan, thanks so much for taking time as always. I appreciate it. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. I suppose this is micro-grid intro music. We'll ask the professor. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's definitely a Monday. Supporters of micro-grid say these self-contained electric grids, which can operate independently from a main power grid, are the solution to a lot of issues. We're going to talk about it in just a moment, as well as the key to combating the rising cost or preferences for how electricity is made. And in way of possibly testing that theory, a local a local institution here and one of the nation's largest generators of electricity have partnered together to bring you have partnered together to bring clean power to Midtown. I'm talking about Georgia Tech and Georgia Power. Yes, they've come together and they've opened a 1.4 megawatt microgrid in Tech Square. And joining me now to talk about all of this and it's being used, why it's being used, Dr. Tim Lewin. He's a Regents Professor, holder of the David S. Lewis Jr. Chair and the Executive Director of the Strategic Energy Energy Institute at Georgia Tech. Professor, welcome. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. It's always fun to um, talk about the ever-exciting topic of electricity. <laughs> did the Georgia Tech folks tell you to open with that? <laughs> <laughs> They did not. But, you know, electricity is one of those things where it's you don't think about it and it's boring until it's not there. Absolutely. Now, let's begin with the basics for our listeners. Uh, give a brief definition of a microgrid. Yeah. So, I, you know, again, electric, it's easy for us to assume electricity is just kind of one of these societal givens. Right. Mm -hmm. you, you plug your light in the wall and the light turns on or your air conditioner and it makes it cold. Or if you have an electric vehicle. But, you know, at the end of the day, electricity comes from some power source, um, a power plant. Mm -hmm. And historically, these power plants have been large centralized facilities. So, for example, in Atlanta, we have very large, clean, reliable power plants called Plant McDonough. It's mm -hmm. off Atlanta Road. It's 360 acres, and it's about a thousand times bigger than the microgrid we're talking about. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of interest and a lot of good reasons to be thinking about increasingly um, quasi-autonomous or or independent smaller grids or microgrids. And that, that's what we have here in, in Midtown. It's, like I said, it's about a thousandth of the size. Let me ask you this. So obviously the energy, energy stored in the microgrid is going to be very different than what's stored in the plants, right? So how is the energy stored 
in the microgrid? Yeah, so the energy is 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 produced, and again, I just a, a microgrid. It's it's something that I would say is is pretty. If you think about, if you know somebody with a, a backup generator for their house mm -hmm. or a hospital or a military base, those are all examples of microgrids. And basically, the power is coming from from some source, and it could be the same type of technology, just something a lot smaller. Um, in the case of the this microgrid, it's coming from a fuel cell. Mm -hmm. It's coming from a um, there, there's a big bat there's a battery there. There is a reciprocating engine and so forth. Let me ask you this: So, does the micro grid still connect or can they connect to the traditional grid at all? Yes. So the microgrid can operate autonomously, but in fact, it also is today as it's operating, it's part of this larger grid and it's, it's interacting um, and it's and it's a piece of the larger system in which it's situated. So, Professor, based on what you've said so far, uh, are microgrids better suited for specific environments? Do we know right now, for example, a college community? Well, I think microgrids are increasingly a solution that we're looking at as just the, 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 the world is changing. You know, we, we have to reduce our climate footprint. We have to get cleaner. And we're going to increasingly be looking at more flexible solutions to, to be able to address those challenges. Um, you know, one of the one of the, the I'll, I'll give you an ex, if I can just give you an example sure. here. You know, electricity, it's, it's like a lot of markets. you got a source of electricity and you got a user of electricity. So let's just take food. You know, we're, we all eat. And if you think about bread that you eat, where, where does that come from? Some, some farmers growing wheat and that, that wheat, they can store it. They can stockpile it. Um, and, you know, then it goes to a baker and, and then they do whatever. And then it comes to me. And so over, let's say over a year, over two years, the amount of, of, of wheat that's grown and the amount of wheat that's consumed Obviously, it's got to average out, but there's a lot of capabilities to store it and to do different things with it. Um, so very flexible. And now take strawberries. Okay. Um, you know, strawberries, same deal, but strawberries have a lot less shelf life, right? You got to be a lot more careful about when you're producing it, when you're consuming it. Electricity, you have the production and the consumption exactly match at the same time. Imagine our food, if what we were eating was produced just a second beforehand. So lots of really of, of significant challenges. And that's where microgrids come in to help. Well, it definitely would be interesting. Well, let me ask you this. With this 1.4 megawatt microgrid located in Tech Square, is this more of a, a pilot to evaluate its ability to, to fit into Tech's overall source of power? What, as a listener probably was saying, okay, Professor, you said all this. What's the purpose of this microgrid? So, so this microgrid is, I mean, it's a very, there's, there's nothing, I mean, it's, it's the real deal. It's putting power on, on the grid. It's, it's, it's providing power to a lot of the, the local buildings that are there. So, so in one sense, it's, it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's real. On the other hand, it's very much, this is where the Georgia Tech, Georgia Power collaboration comes in. Mm -hmm. It's very much a sort of a research asset. We're doing a lot of things to better understand how these microgrids interact with with the buildings they're in it's it's very configurable we can take things out we can put them back in we can we can um try different things around how it's controlled and so what's really unique about this facility is just its flexibility and the fact that we can we can study it and, and those best practices can be used around the country are there any challenges or concerns that come with microgrids in terms of how they fit into when we talk about and listen we've been talking about 100% clean and renewable in energy. We've had all these conversations for so long. Are there any any challenges or concerns that you all see with with microgrids? 
you know, I think really the microgrids are there to deal with other concerns and challenges. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so we've talked about resilience, just, you know, again, electricity is something we worry about until we don't worry about it until it's not there. And, and, and microgrids provide a way to really add resilience to, to that local region. The other thing that they can do is, I'll, I'll give you an example, lots of growth in electric vehicles. Well, electric vehicles take power. Suppose everybody's driving in Midtown and they now want to start charging. Is the capacity there? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe rather than building out a big new, a big new transmission and distribution system, you just put some local power there. And so it's it's less so much challenges as other challenges that were that they don't introduce challenges. We we put them into to solve problems. Is there another phase in after this? And how are you all going to? And hopefully this is question makes sense. How do you evaluate then the effectiveness of this microgrid and what it, what you all put it there for? What's the next phase and after that? So, yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's putting power on the grid today. It's interacting with those those different buildings. There's, there's cloud computing. Um, and so, you know, just the, the the resilience and the quality of the of the electricity that's there, but but, but is there broadly, a cap? Is there is there a cap into how much you talked about the buildings that are there? I mean, look, we know how much power can come from a plant in in the, the yep. area that it can it can provide power to. When we talk about microgrid for our listeners. Can you give them an example? Are we talking about a certain number of buildings? A certain? Can you break that down for us? Yeah, it's it's. I, I don't know. Remember the exact numbers, but probably three or four decent-sized buildings are getting powered by that by that microgrid. But again, right now, and, and that's that's if it was completely independent. But remember, it's interact. There's there's a much larger grid that is sure. set within, and they can be they can be independent or they can work together. Why the purpose? Obviously, we know about Georgia Power, obviously because they are our, our energy provider here. But from this partnership, what do you take away from this with a major institution like Georgia Tech and then Georgia Power, and then where do you all go with this? So, you know, Georgia Tech, we really want to be involved in, in deployment and implementation of solutions. You know, we don't want to just be thinking great thoughts. We want to be actually putting putting solutions on the ground. So for us, it's really exciting that this microgrid is actually located on Georgia Tech property mm -hmm. and that we're, and obviously Georgia Power owns it, they operate it, but we're going to be partnering with them very closely to better understand how this thing works to be, again, to be developing use cases and best practices as our, as our country is, is, is cleaning up its electricity. Well, let's talk about that because you and I both know that when it comes to certain topics as it relates to whether it's the environment or, or energy, depending on whom you ask, you get a lot of different answers in terms of solution and what's working and what's not working. As you look to the future in terms of this nation, Professor, how do you see in, in terms of how we generate and, and how we use our energy? What is your hope? Is there optimism here in terms of where we're going? I mean, the, the tr we're absolutely on the right on the right trajectory. You know, I think that there's a lot of concerns whether we're going to get there fast enough. Um, you know, you, you look at this state, the state is a leader in deployment of new solar. If you look at our country, we're, we're making a lot of wind energy, a lot of solar energy. We're very, very rapidly um, reducing the, the, um, the CO2 footprint of our energy systems. And even we're, we're looking, taking really close looks at things like our our natural gas plants and how to how to reduce their their environmental footprint. Well, um, so lots of good 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 things are happening. Just a matter of how we can get there quick enough. Well, how important is it then that we always use this word that there is a holistic approach to this solution because also it can change depending on legislation. It can change on depending who's in the White House. So it's from the federal level down to the state and local level. Everyone working together. Yeah, absolutely. Holistic is key. And I think we have to think about who's benefiting, who's bearing the brunt, really paying attention to the equity and justice concerns, making sure that these are solutions 
that, you know, that the market's going to take. It's not just because the government's there. I think that's a critical piece. And like you said, this involves the city, it involves the state of Georgia, the, the federal government, and it involves, you know, local businesses like Georgia Power. And when we talk about equity, that's a whole nother conversation, which I know I'm going to bring you back for. We need to talk about that. Dr. Tim Lewin, a Regents professor, holder of the David S. Lewis Jr. Chair and the executive director of the Strategic Energy Institute at Georgia Tech. We've been talking about that microgrid located in Tech Square. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time and breaking this down for us. I really appreciate it. Got to have you back. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott, and it kind of feels like that movie Groundhog Day. I don't know. <laughs> Gonna get it together. Recently, there was a celebration in downtown Clarkston. That's a small city in DeKalb County. Why was there a celebration? Well, it's called the first of its kind, a pocket neighborhood with eight newly constructed homes on a half acre. Now, you may say eight homes on a half acre. Well, it was called the Cottage cottages on Vaughn development and it's something that really took more than just a concept it took policy and it took a partnership will johnston is the founder and ceo of microlife institute you hear more about their mission in just a moment and kim morrison who heads the policy and development part of the organization thank you both for taking the time i really appreciate it glad to be here yeah, thanks for having us. Before we talk about the cottages on Vaughn development, I want to begin with getting your thoughts regarding the nation's eviction moratorium, which expired this past weekend. And Will, you and I, we've had conversations about affordable housing in this region. And now we know that with this moratorium, people say affordable housing is beyond a crisis. Just your thoughts on that, Will. Uh, my immediate thoughts is that there needs to be some, there's a bigger, there needs to be a bigger play happening um especially you know i know being able to extend the moratorium hopefully being able to actually have that sit down conversations um, of just saying this is what needs to happen people are in a crisis a housing crisis and they need a home to be stabilized and if we disrupt thousands of people what is that going to do to our city mm-hmm. it's very granular it, it just starts with one person and then that's one block removed mm-hmm. and suddenly we're all going to start falling kim what about you your thoughts yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that we've all been really concerned about. And our, our, our board of directors has actually talked about, you know, what is the Microlife Institute? Can we do about this? And, you know, I really think expanding our housing options is is part of the solution. But this is a, a much larger conversation, for sure. And, Will, let me go back to you. When we talk about micro housing, I know you and I used to always talk about tiny homes. But for our listeners who might need a, just a better def- definition of that, when we talk about micro housing and its concept, it's just more than just small little houses. Correct. What we feel what micro housing is to us as the Micro Life Institute is really below the average standard of size of housing. The average standard size 
of houses around 2,600 square feet. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a thousand square feet or smaller, really utilizing space to make sure a family of four can live comfortably in a thousand square feet within a walkable distance to what they need. Do you think this model is finally getting the notice and, and being accepted as a viable solution when we talk about affordable housing? Or is there still some work to do in terms of perception, Kim? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've made some great strides in Atlanta. You know, the city of Atlanta and the city of Decatur have both removed their square foot minimums, showing they see the value of these smaller structures. Um, but a lot of other municipalities and counties in the metro area have yet to do so. So I think we've got a long way to go, but we're, we're definitely on the right track. Will, I'll let you add to that. Uh, again, just uh, agree with Kim, just saying that, you know, we are just starting. And I think the fact that, you know, we have the cottages on Vaughn as a demonstration tool and an example for people to come see, feel, touch, and believe it. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's not for everybody, but we need to add the options. Before we get into that, uh, Will, let me stay with you because we talked about these, these perceptions. And I know you've had many conversations with people who say, well, you know, yeah, but it's so small. Or if I have a, a micro housing development near me, it's going to impact, you know, my housing value. What are those some of those conversations you tend to have about this and that you sort of have to defend this movement? We do. I think there is a stigma and um, a stigma around small spaces. We seem to assign smaller spaces to people who have, quote unquote, not done well in life and or need a uh, need a hand to get back on track mm -hmm. but um as an owner of one of the cottages on vaughn that i live here now i have ample space and when people come to visit me they ask if my house is around 900 square feet and it's only 492. so again i believe it's seeing is believing and also some of the other issues that people bring up you know you know it, they don't realize cost per square foot does go up in a smaller space. So they don't understand why we're paying more for less, but then it frees you up to do more with your life. So there's a bigger conversation than just the actual structure. Kim, when we talk about then policy and legislation, you also f find yourself having to defend this whole concept of what you know, micro housing is all about. And for folks who have concerns about it impacting you know, a, a surrounding neighborhood or particularly if you have a neighborhood that has some very large homes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is something that you know, it's not necessarily for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we don't feel like everyone has to live this way, but we really need that diversity of housing so we can have abundant housing options. And when we look at housing values, I mean, just from a pure real estate appraiser perspective, this is not a comp to a bigger house. It's not a, a comparable um, type structure because it's so much smaller. And so that's one of the interesting things that we were excited about keeping these houses smaller. It allowed it to not really compete with, with the neighborhood. So it's just a totally different product. As mentioned, the Cottages on Vaughn development took some policy and a partnership. Will, a couple questions for you to get started. First, tell our listeners where this is located in Clarkston, Georgia. So we are just, I would say, you know, 11 miles east outside of Atlanta, and we are right downtown Clarkston. We are on a small little street called Vaughn Street, and um, luckily our head of policy and development, Kim Morrison, was able to find this parcel after we spoke to then Mayor, Mayor Ted Terry. Uh, he came to one of our tiny house festivals. So this all started with a conversation at a tiny house festival. Um, I believe it was one at Pont City Market about four years ago. So this has been an ongoing conversation 
conversation about how we can add, like Kim said, abundant housing options. And so he really started talking to us and saying, how can we bring in more housing options to Clarkston? And that's when Kim and I sat down and looked at their cottage court ordinance. And so let's talk about those ordinances, Kim, because we've had folks, I've had folks email me and say, well, aren't aren't there some zoning or or ordinance issues here and and what needs to happen in terms of some of these communities or cities having to adopt or modify those ordinances? What had to happen in Clarkston? Yeah, absolutely. So Clarkston was one of the few places in Georgia that actually already had an existing cottage ordinance that would allow for a development like this, but there were some fundamental issues with it. And so they had to amend their ordinance Um, It had been adopted about 10 years prior and no one had ever built a cottage court. And so we dug in and tried to help them figure out why. And so they were really great. They amended their ordinance. It took about six months. So it wasn't a super quick process, but also not anything unmanageable. And then we and some other developers were able to actually get some some projects approved. And so I think, you know, any community that's looking at looking at this option, I'd say first look to see if your municipality or, or your county has an existing cottage ordinance. And if not, um, if they're open to adopting one. And then alternatively, it could be done as a planned development, which is a very common um, type of development. Let me ask you, what goes into a, a cottage ordinance? Yeah, so it's really, it's a specific ordinance that talks about the orientation of the homes around a common space, um, capping the size, limiting the size so that it doesn't get very large, usually 1,200 square feet or less is pretty common, so that you're giving a trade-off between a higher density Mm -hmm. of homes per acre, but having smaller homes, so you're really, you know, limiting the impact on the infrastructure and the road systems and, and everything like that. Describe the cottages for our listeners. Let's talk about the building material. Anything different here? I, I mean, I, as I look out my window, you're seeing craftsman style uh, cottages that are a variety in colors, same type of roofing materials you see everywhere else. I mean, there's really nothing different. These are still single family homes that are just uh, 492 square feet. And the infrastructure, everything, the plumbing, sewer, all that is the same. And, and Will, are these, they're, they're not mobile. They are a fixture to no, the... No, they, they are, correct. They are on foundation. So again, you know, uh, I think there's that misconception of like, what is a tiny house? In the state of Georgia, defined by the state of Georgia, they adopted the tiny house appendix. They define a tiny house actually as a 400 square foot unit on foundation. Now, what we see online and see on TV, mm-hmm. we see tiny house nation, the tiny houses on wheels. Those by the state of Georgia are defined as a recreational vehicle. So you cannot live full time in a tiny house on wheels because it is deemed as such and you need to live within an approved zone like a a mobile home park or Mm -hmm. a trailer park. And that way you're able to live that lifestyle full time. Now, obviously there's that spectrum of like, well, what is a tiny house? And we try to, when someone always asks me, well, I wanna live in a tiny house, I start by first replying with a question, what do you mean by a tiny house? Um, And really these are cottages, what we have built. We have actually, we have one tiny house. We have a 250 square foot um, model Mm -hmm. that actually was sold first. We do have solar on four of the structures because the sun hits them perfectly. That was my next question about, I just had a conversation about energy with the professor from Georgia Tech. That was my next question. Are these solar? Yes. 
Go ahead, Kim. <laughs> so I was gonna say, yeah, half of half of them are. You know, half of the homes are too shaded to really make sense for for adding solar. But the first four coming into the development do have solar. And kind of addressing your question about the building materials, mm -hmm. um, you know, we really were excited to be able to use traditional building materials to keep our costs down. But we had an amazing architect, Cove Tool, Patrick Chops with Cove Tool, who does energy modeling for other architects. And so he was able to design um, our homes in a way that the energy usage was super efficient, just using standard building materials. And so that's something that anyone can do, um, have your, your standard framing, standard everything. I have a question here from a listener who just sent me an email, wanted to know, is it tough to get insurance for this type of, of cottage or is it separate insurance? No, it's it's home insurance. Home insurance. I, I just got mine a couple weeks ago, so it's no problem. <laughs> and well, let me. They ask will you. take your money. They still will take your money. Of course. <laughs> let me ask you this: So, the Micro Institute owns this development, or is it a partnership with the City of Clarkson? Who owns the the, the development? So originally, the Micro Life Institute was a partner in an LLC that came together to develop this. And um, we worked with another develop local developer. And again, we found this 0.57 acres mm -hmm. and started to build. Each house is fee simple. So each homeowner owns their own house and their own parcel of land. I was going to ask you, they own that they land. Correct. And then the HOA owns the common area and maintains it. So There's an HOA for a... Ooh, yep. that, really? Tiny HOA. Tiny HOA. <laughs> what? Can you? Will you know me? You've known me for a long time. So, yeah. like, is there a pool? <laughs> what? What am I paying for my HOA? <laughs> so, okay. So, you know, the more we talk, the more I'm realizing I'm forgetting to add. So, we also have we worked with Roots Down, um, Jamie Rosenthal, yes. to really create a good edible landscape. So we've got um, blueberries, figs, a uh, lot uh, Loquats, which I still don't know what they are, but I've been told they're <laughs> delicious. Um, we've got basil. And so, so we have this way of building community through the built environment and our landscape. So I can go to, you know, Rich's house and ask for some rosemary for my pot reps, or they can come to my house for the basil and, and so on. So again, it's that whole thing of, of, of allowing that interaction between mm -hmm. the neighbors. How much interest have you all received from folks who want to and are, can folks buy are they renting can someone purchase a cottage and then turn it into an airbnb and or want to rent it out do you all have some because you know in some hoas and subdivisions they have their little rules so let's get this on out there because if this is part of the solution what you don't want to take is, is some of the same issues that people have with larger scale homes i don't know if that's I'll fair or not <laughs> yeah, so that was one of the things we were really interested in is making sure that people that owned these homes really lived in the community and they weren't looking at it as an investment or a short-term rental. And so all of our homes are actually sold. Um, we pre-sold five of them before they were built, and then we sold the last three in the last 60 days um, upon completion. But we put into the HOA covenants restrictions to um, prevent short-term rentals more than two weeks a year. So if a homeowner wants to go on vacation, they can make a little extra income by renting it out. But beyond that, it's prohibited. Um, and we have a caveat that if they sell the home, um, the Microlife Institute uh, partnership has the ability to purchase the home back. So it is supposed to deter people for you know from just buying it and then flipping it in a year. Is financing available? Or did most folks just just were able to pay 
write a check? Yeah, no. Um, we had construction loans uh, with mm-hmm. one of our preferred um, lenders for the first five. And then the last three homes were sold as just traditional single family homes. And each of the homeowners got, you know, loans from different, you know, big box lenders. Um, yeah. Well, what was the average cost here, Will? So to actually, I wanted to address the interest list. So again, as the MicroLife Institute, we've built up a following over the years of just talking about downsizing your way to happiness. And we actually had a list of organically grown to about 1500 people interested in purchasing these eight houses. Because again, it's not just the size that attracts people, it's it's getting back to being in a community. I've already asked for a cup of sugar. You know, I've I've, I've helped someone put up their blind. You're borrowing I mean, a lot from neighbors over there, Will. What? <laughs> I don't know if I want to live next to you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, Rose, uh, whatever whatever snacks you make, I'm I'm all for it. You know, I I prefer to be a handyman, so I can come over and fix whatever you need. Um, but how cost, much? How much? Yeah, we so we started. Um, the, obviously, the 250 square foot model. And Kim, I'm actually going to let Kim answer because I always prefer the the her to answer. Yeah, so it was 109000 and then the owner added an $8,000 solar package. Hmm. So super affordable considering what we're looking at Atlanta. Um, the larger homes started at $150,000. Um, and then the last three, they went at market rate. We've had, you know, the frenzy of whatever is happening in real estate right now. So they they went up um, closer to the 200000 mark. But we were still really pleased to have, you know, eight homes available under much lower than than the average that we're seeing in Atlanta right now. When we started this conversation, we talked about the eviction moratorium, and we talked about how the concept of microhousing fits into the whole conversation, the larger conversation of affordable housing. You see this model, this cottages at Vaughn development, you seen this being the template that communities and other cities could, could look at in developing. And particularly for when we talk about folks who have a hard time getting those those loans for for houses, for condos, what have you, you all seeing this being different, really being different. We do. And, you know, again, we built these to be an example. We, we want people, we're going to be an open book. We want people to learn from our mistakes. We want cities to understand how to streamline the, the, their permitting and, and, and fee system, because every time a dollar is asked for, you have to pass it on to the buyer. So how can we, as a city developer a group, reduce the cost to allow that attainability to be passed along. And how do you ensure equity and equity in all this too as well, Kim? Or can you? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. Will, <laughs> any thoughts on that? Well, I don't know. Well, when it comes to, when it comes to affordable housing, that is at the core of all of this. Yeah. Well, you know that. Well, and, and one of the things, you know, again, what's great about us and as MicroLife Institute, we have a lot of amazing partner organizations, um, Atlanta Land Trust, um, West Side Future Fund. We're in talks. We actually worked with Chris 180 to build mm-hmm. a, a women's transitional housing. So yes, there is equity, but it's not, not necessarily the same project as the cottage's 
on Vaughn. So what type of projects can be inspired, can be utilized, can be created with using the Cottage on Vaughn as an inspiration? As but it definitely could project. work on some other, some other sides of, could, the, yes. of Atlanta. It you could, know that. It could fit. It could work across Atlanta. Think about infill housing mm -hmm. um, and really working with the Atlanta Land Bank and removing the property value, but then just making them buy the house or rent the house. So we can talk about how you really hit that, you know, between 30 AMI to 100% AMI, how can we make sure all walks of life people in their, in whatever state they're in, they sure. can afford this. Gotcha. Will Johnston, founder and CEO of MicroLife Institute. Also, Kim Morrison, who heads the policy and development. We're going to come out there and, and visit with you all real soon. Thank Please you so do. much for taking the time. Thank, Thank you. you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.